So David was a man after God's own heart. And in the last chapter, we saw David and why he's that man. Saul was chasing him. Him and his 600 men were hiding in a place called En Gedi. It's right off the Dead Sea. Total dirt, desert. But surprisingly, there's this giant waterfall that flows even to this day, the same one David would have used. And, um, and as you're traveling back to that waterfall, there are just hundreds of caves, maybe thousands of them. It's just a unique terrain. And David and his men, they ran into one of these caves, went to the very back and hid. When Saul shows up, I mean, it's, it's almost unreal that he picked out of all the caves he could have went into, the same cave he went into there to go poo-poo, okay? And uh, as he goes back and he gets back in the cave a little ways, you know, he flips his robe up and squats and, and the guys are going, David, this is the Lord giving the enemy, your enemy into your hand. You know, when you're squatting like that, you're sort of uh, vulnerable, but it's also perfect head cutting off height, you know? Just chop his head off. And you think about it, David would have came out with Saul's head. Saul's own family loved David more than their dad, Saul. The generals, they have followed David, even though he was a young man, they saw the wisdom in him. All the people, David's killed his, or Saul's killed his thousands, but David is tens of thousands. Boy, did Saul hate that song. Had he come out, the whole country would have accepted it. But David is like, no, guys, leave me alone. But he pressure, feeling the pressure, he did cut the part of his garment off there. And when he, as soon as he did it, oh, he was so convicted. He felt horrible that, not, that he had touched even the robe of the Lord's anointed was too far. Saul got out and got a distance away, and David came out not to be prideful and arrogant, but to repent. Saul, this is your son David, and here's your garment. I'm so sorry for touching even the garment of the Lord's anointed. Forgive me. And Saul realized, had David had an intent to kill me, he would have. But Saul just keeps believing in his madness that David's trying to dethrone him and kill him. And, and then Saul, he has a momentary moment of regret and they have some words and, and David just still feels horrible that he even touched the garment of the Lord's anointed. But in that, we get the heart of God. That is the heart of God right there. To, to, to recognize those who are in leadership over us and they have that authority that they are the Lord's anointed. David later in the Psalms would say, Exhortation doesn't come from the north, the south, the east, or the west. It always comes from the Lord. Not one person in any place of authority, Romans 13 says, that God didn't either put in there or at least allow it for his purposes. And David goes on in that Psalms saying, God raises up and God brings down. They're equally as easy to him. There's not one harder to God than the other. And that God is the one who raises up. God is the one who brings down. And so David in his heart said, hey, Saul's king. I know I've been anointed. I'm going to be the king. But until God does it, I'm not going to help God out. I'm not going to, you know, push the timeline ahead a little bit. I'm going to recognize that God is the one doing it. If God's going to raise me up, God's going to be the one to do it in his timing, in his way. I'm not going to touch the Lord's anointed. And we realize, wow, how deeply spiritual of David to get that, to understand that. Powerful point. Well, we come to chapter 25 now, a chapter really of contrast. And in first, it says there in 1 Samuel 25, 1, then Samuel died. This is the reality, isn't it? Here's Samuel, since he was two, three years old, 
has been around in the temple. At a young age, it became evident that he would be the next judge. But then he evolved even more than that. He became a prophet. So Samuel would be the final judge. He'd be a prophet unto God. And after him, would the king dispensation of time of kings would begin. But here's Daniel, this solid, godly fixture. Decade after decade, the people felt at peace and secure because Samuel is a true godly man. And when he speaks, you can count on it. It is truly the heart of God. And there's nobody else around at this time. That's a prophet in this way, at least not nationally known. And so Samuel, no matter how godly he is, no matter how righteous he is, no matter how wonderful he is, no matter how needed he is, Samuel, as all men, godly or not, we die. And I think that would have been a, a, a very difficult moment for the young and the old who have always been used to Samuel being in the equation to help lead the nation, but he's gone. And the Israelites gathered together and lamented for him and buried him at his home in Ramah. And then the next sentence is, and David arose and went down to the wilderness of Paran. I love this. Samuel died, but guess what? David arose. In Acts chapter 2, Peter, the very first sermon, begins to preach. And he begins to quote several psalms about the Messiah. And he says this, And David, being a prophet, said these prophetic words. So here it is. David arose as Samuel died. Samuel's a unique guy because you say, once you die, your ministry on the earth is over. That's pretty much 100%, isn't it? But at the very end of this teaching on the life of David, Saul, in his craziness, wants to hear a word from God from Samuel. So he goes to a witch. And the witch, God allows it, for Samuel's his actual godly spirit to come up. And he does speak. I don't know how to put this in my theology. It's just one of those weird stories that just sort of breaks the mold. And Samuel prophesies something rather horrible to Saul. I don't think Saul was thinking very clearly if he goes through a witch to call up Samuel that he'd get good news. But um, Samuel does have one more prophecy after death. Interesting, isn't it? The only other story I can think similar is Elisha, where he's dead and buried and his body decays. And years later, just an unknown group of Gentiles who are at war are going through that place. Their soldier friend, they were carrying him, he was wounded, but then he died. And they said, hey, we got to take care of his body before we can keep running for our lives. And we don't have the time to dig one or prepare one. So they just opened the lid and it happened to be Elisha's sarcophagus. And they throw the dead guy's body into here. And when he hits the bones of Elijah, he raises from the dead. And uh, to clearly signify that uh, Elisha, although he died of a sickness, probably died from cancer or something, that it wasn't that the power wasn't available to keep him going or to heal him. It was simply, it was the will of God that he died from an illness at that time. So those are a couple of unusual stories here. But now we go on to the actual story in verse 2. Now, there was a man of Maon whose business was in Carmel. This was a businessman. He probably had his winter house, his summer house, had different companies around in different places. And it says, and the man was very rich. Not just rich, but very rich. He had 3,000 sheep, 1,000 goats, and he was shearing his sheep in Carmel. So it's the time of a harvest. This is the time of partying. You didn't just, 
you know, have a day of work and shearing. No, it was a feast. It was a party. Everybody would participate. They would be feasting on all the different foods and the new wines would be broke out and, and all the people, it's sort of a family celebration venture as they're bringing in the different produces, as they're shearing the sheep, uh, as long as it takes uh, until the shearing of the sheep is done, they continue to celebrate. Now, I, I would like to make a note here that this guy is rich, but it makes it clear it's in financial things. Now, there are more than one way to be rich. And the Bible actually makes it pretty clear that being financially rich only is sort of a trap because it makes you self-sufficient and arrogant. And as Solomon says, David's son in the Proverbs, Lord, don't make me too rich that I don't feel like I need you anymore that I can solve all my problems with my wealth, which can pretty much happen. But I think that we have seen, especially these last two years, sort of unprecedented amount of celebrities in the fashion world and the movie world committing suicide. They got more money than they could ever spend in a lifetime. Everybody loves them, at least in the movies. But yet, when you look behind the scenes, their family is not together. There's tragedy and hurt and, and many wives being married off and on and the kids are, they, they're, just, they're rotten, rich kids. You know, they got their jet and everybody jets this weekend to Paris and parties and then they jet over to, you know, Japan the next weekend and party and all these jet-shedding rich kids. They're drug-addicted and, and, and they're messed up and they're not close to their dad or their mom. And these people just eventually get to the place. They just wake up in the morning and they have so much emotional pain that they, they just say, I can't do it another day and they kill themselves. And so having a bunch of money, you might say the person's rich, but in reality, a person is rich when he's at peace with himself and God. Amen. And then he's blessed by family that's together and not fractured. I don't know if anybody can make it through a lifetime without some family fractured. I, I haven't seen it yet. But And then, of course, a character that's honest and kind and a righteous character is wealth in and of itself. Well, we go on to read about this guy. The name of the man was Nabal. Now, that's interesting because um, I don't think that's probably what his name meant when his parents named him that, but eventually, you know how languages evolve. You know, there, there was that one guy, a sports guy, whose name was Ben Gay. That was actually his name. And of course, they eventually make an ointment for that, right? Uh, to put on you to stop your hurts. But then the word gay has evolved. When I was a kid, we used to sing uh, a couple of different Christian songs that ever since the Lord came into my house, I'm, I came into my life, I'm happy and gay. You know, it, you watch some of the old black and white movies. It's like, oh, it's a beautiful gay day, isn't it? You know, that was just a, a way of sunshiny, happy. But... Now, if your last name's gay, you probably want to change it, you know? Um, so this guy's name, Nabal, I don't know what it was when his parents named him, but now it's the same word as the word fool, which actually maybe his parents were prophets because that became very appropriate for this guy. And the name of his wife, Abigail. And she was a woman of good understanding and beautiful in appearance. But the man was harsh and evil in his doings. And he was of the house of Caleb. Now, the Caleb, remember Joshua, Caleb, the two mighty men of faith that were able to go into the promised land. And Caleb became one of the top leaders of the entire nation of Israel. But interesting enough, the name Caleb actually means dog. 
and in that culture, that would be like calling somebody uh, a donkey, the old King James Version donkey, in our culture. They were, they were, they were just ravaging beasts, knocking over things and, and selfish and all ugly looking. So it wasn't a great name, but it's interesting that it is sort of fitting for this guy, Nabal, vicious, dog, out of control, harsh and evil. I think he probably didn't start these businesses and become wealthy. I think he probably inherited it. And he was just sort of giving it to him. And he grew up as a rich brat himself. And uh, he, he, having a lot of money, you can treat people pretty bad and get away with it because you're rich. Well, David heard in the wilderness that Nabal was shearing his sheep. Now, David was sort of waiting for this time for his payment. As we notice here in verse 5 now, David sent 10 young men. David was said to the young men, go up to Carmel to Nabal and greet him in my name. And thus you shall say to him who lives in prosperity. This is what you're to say. Peace to you. Peace to your house and peace to all that you have. Boy, it's just beautiful. Shalom, you know, in the Hebrew. Shalom to you. Shalom, shalom. Now I have heard that you have shears. Your shepherds were with us and we did not hurt them, nor was there anything missing from them at all while we were in Carmel. So go and tell him that this is the best year you've ever had. Because the amount of loss that usually a guy would expect to have in a year, some bears, some lions, some thieves, this is on the Philistine border, so even the Philistine army might come over and snatch some. So, you know, usually he would put into the math equation, I'm going to lose this many sheep to animals or thieves, and I'm going to lose them this way, but it didn't happen. This was an unprecedented year of prosperity for Nabal because David and those 600 mighty men were keeping an eye out. So they saw some Philistines coming, they showed up, some thieves, all of a sudden they're there, you know, with the arrow going, you're not going to steal those sheep. Um, and and they were, their presence kept the, the wild animals away. And so David is, is saying, this is, this is worth something to Nabal and his great wealth. And he goes on in verse 8 to say, ask your young men, and they will tell you, therefore let my young men find favor in your eyes, for we come on a feast day. Please give whatever comes to your hand to, notice, your servants and to your son, David. So I want you to go and just show this guy absolute respect. They probably bowed down to Nabal, the one that God has given great process, prosperity. Blessed be your house. Shalom, shalom, blessed, peace upon you. And, and we just ask that you being this wealthy man, just give a little bit of whatever's in your heart and it'll be enough. And we are your servants. And I send this message from your son, David. So you, you can see that these guys were not in any way trying to intimidate or trying to say, yeah, you know, Nabal, if you want to keep your kneecaps, you'll start giving us this much, you know, like the mob or something. Not at all. So when David's young men came, they spoke to Nabal according to all these words in the name of David, and they waited. See, they weren't pushy. They weren't threatening. Nabal's not talking to them right away. He's making a point by ignoring them for a while, as we're going to discover. And whatever's in his hand, you, you know, David sent 10 young men. So that sort of gives an indication about how much he's expecting. It would take 10 guys on their camels probably, uh, to load up and take stuff back. So they're not asking very much. But notice what happens with Nabal after he thinks about this and makes these guys sit around waiting. Finally, he talks to them, and Nabal answered David's servants and said, Who is David? Who is this son of Jesse? Thought you didn't know who he was. How'd you know his dad's name? Um, he knew who David was. He understood that uh, he was one of the great generals of Israel and, and uh, as well as the king's son-in-law and God was with him but he's 
doesn't acknowledge this. Who's David? Who's the son of Jesse? Aren't there many servants nowadays who break away each one from his master? There's a lot of runaway slaves, and I'm not going to acknowledge. If I start acknowledging one runaway slave, I've got to start acknowledging them all. So far as I'm concerned, you're just a runaway slave hiding out in the mountains, and you want to be rewarded for this. And then we hear the real heart of Nabal here in verse 11. Shall I then take my bread and my water and my meat that I have killed for my shears and give it to the men when I do not know where they are from? Wow. Do you hear this guy? I've done it. I've done it. I've done it. The Corinthians were looking down their nose at Paul and those with him in prison. And they're living this comfortable Christian life in Corinth with all these popular guys coming through and preaching like Apostle or, or, um, Apollos and Peter, all these guys coming around and, and they were living in wealth in this Roman Empire in Corinth and they were saying, but Paul, you're, you're poor and you're in prison, arrested for preaching the gospel. And Paul has to rebuke them. And in 1 Corinthians 4, 7, he says, for who makes you differ from another? And what do you have that you did not receive? Now, if you did indeed receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? He's saying in essence to them, whatever your state in life is right now, you need to realize God's given you this prosperity. God's given you this peace. And you need to acknowledge, either directly or indirectly, God is letting you stay in that place. Amen. Remember Job. <laughs> Richest man in the world to the poorest man in the world in the same day. But I also think of that story in Daniel of Nebuchadnezzar. Remember, he had the great Babylonian empire. And he stood on top of one of the tallest buildings looking out over Daniel had warned him not to do it. But a year later, he didn't catch himself quick enough. And Nebuchadnezzar says, look at all that I have and all that I have done and all that I have built and the great glory of this great kingdom. It's because of me, Nebuchadnezzar, and why the words were in his mouth, he was struck dumb. He wandered around and ate grass like the cows, his fingernails like the claws of a bird, his hair like the feathers of a bird. And this continued on for seven years until he finally humbled himself. And in that mad place, he looked to heaven and he says, God, I get it. Man is as nothing. It's your kingdom that will always rule and reign. It's your glory that will last forever. As of man, he is nothing before you. God can raise up. God can bring down. And man needs to constantly live with a humble heart of that reality. Right? Amen. In James, I, I wonder if he was thinking about Nabal <laughs> when he wrote James chapter 4, verse 13 to 16. Now come you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city, spend a year there, buy and sell, make a profit. I'm wealthy. I'm a good salesman. I'll make this successful. That's me. I, I, I'm able to do that. Whereas, do you not know what will happen tomorrow? For what is your life? Is it even a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away? Instead, you ought to say, this should be the right attitude to your heart. If the Lord wills and we live, we'll do this or that. But now you're boasting in your arrogance. All such boasting is what? It's evil. This is Solomon. In all his wisdom, he, he's praying and he begs God, don't let me be too rich. Don't let me be too poor. Because I see men's hearts changing. When they have a lot of wealth, they don't sense their need for you anymore. And I don't want to be that guy. In Matthew 19, 24, Jesus made it clear, didn't he? It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. 
So you guys are sewing. You got your little needle there trying to get the thread through it. Well, this is like a big giant um, camel's head. I'm going to shove it through there. You know, it's impossible with man. But God is making it clear here in the scriptures that being wealthy is a dicey place to be. And your heart can easily become prideful and self-sufficient and not acknowledge that, that God is allowing us as a gift to remain alive and, and whatever blessings we have. I mean, all God has to do is take one little nitrogen atom out of our Earth's atmosphere, and in three days, everything would be dust, including you and me. All he's got to do is give that moon just a little bump, <laughs> a little farther away. And all of a sudden, instead of the waves of the sea churning at one degree, the waves could cover the earth and water could permanently cover the earth. Or the waves would not be as strong as they are and the whole oceans would become polluted in a matter of a few days. What about the sun? <laughs> Any closer, any further away, we're not going to have what we have right now. We, we realize that God is in charge of all these things, and, and we just need to remain to say, Lord, help us. And I, and I say this because we're all the rich people. Yeah, preach it to those rich people, Brian. I am, you, every one of you. The fact that we live in America, we are the wealthiest. I mean, just, just the fact that we can live in this country. Let's not even talk about wealth or jobs or money or cars. Right now, there is no better country in the world to live in. And that, that's not a prideful American speaking. I think pretty much, um, if you were to take a vote, that it would be a high majority of people would say, America is the best place to live on earth. I, I just think that's a fact, okay? And, um, and so you're rich. This is the fact that you're on this soil and you're living in this country and we have so many opportunities to better ourselves if we're willing to put our nose to the grindstone. And, uh, and so um, we are the wealthy. And so I just say to you, have that humble heart and say, Lord, thank you for letting us live in America Thank you for that constitution that our forefathers wrote that was brilliant. And uh, even though the system is only as good as the people running it, um, and that we have seen better at better times. Either way, um, we need to have that humble heart of a rich man. It makes it clear that in Psalms 24.1, David makes it clear the earth is the Lord's and all its fullness, the world and those who dwell therein. In Haggai 2, 80 says, the silver is mine, the gold is mine, says the Lord of hosts. Everything is the Lord's, right? And, it, and it's sort of stupid to think that it's, we possess it. We, we're borrowers of it for a while. So you're wealthy enough to finally buy a pound of gold. Wow, that, that'd be a, worth a lot, right? So you go down to the bank and you get a special safety deposit box and you put your few square chunks of gold into there. And what now? I don't know, unless you ever need it, then you go pull one out and turn it into cash and, and use it. But if not, it probably just sits there. And then you die. <laughs> and your kids inherit it. And it sits there. Unless they need it, which they probably won't. And then they die. And, and it's just foolishness, isn't it? Oh, I got this great floor. Yeah, you, you notice that floor for a couple of weeks and you forget that you even have a nice floor. It, it's ridiculous to think that being rich in earth stuff makes us rich. Life is a vapor. And whatever we possess, it's so temporary. And it's going to be passed on to somebody else. Boy, Timothy tells us the right attitude. Paul tells young Timothy in chapter 6, verse 6 to 12, to these rich Ephesians who are in the Ephesus church there. He says, now godliness with contentment 
is great gain, right? It's not by how much you have, but how much you still want. The man that doesn't have craves for more, he's actually satisfied. He's wealthy. We brought nothing in this world. It's certain we can carry nothing out. Having food and clothing with these, we shall be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, a snare into many foolish and harmful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is the root of all evil, for which some have strayed from the faith and their greediness, pierced himself through with many sorrows. But you, O man of God, flee these things, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, gentleness, fight the good fight of faith, lay hold on eternal life to which you were also called and have confessed the good confession in the presence of many. He continues on in verse 17 on this subject. Command those, as a military general, command the people under you who are rich in this present age not to be haughty, nor to trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God who gives us richly all things to enjoy. Let them do good. Listen to this now. That they be rich in good works. Secondly, ready to give. Thirdly, willing to share. Storing up for themselves a good foundation for the time to come, they may lay hold on eternal life. That is the attitude of a rich man. (laughs) To say, I know it's from God. I know I am holding on to it temporarily. Dust I've come from, dust I will return. Can't take anything with me. So whatever God's possessed me with, I want to use those possessions to do good works. Be willing to share, ready to give. Saying, God, you gave it to me to to not hold on to it and then I die. And I got this big giant warehouse of stuff. The the point is, is that you're wanting me to be a good steward. You've given it to me for a plan and a purpose for your kingdom. Let me be wise to do that. Well, going back now to 1 Samuel 25, verse 12, the story moves on. And David's young men returned, turned on their heels and went back, and they came and told him all these words. And David said to his men, every man gird on his sword. So every man girded on his sword. And David also girded on his sword. And about 400, went, uh, 400 men went with David and 200 stayed with the supplies. Wow. David's knee-jerk reaction was, ah, oh, nobody disrespects me or my men like that. We're going to go down there and we are going to war against them for saying those kind of disrespectful things to me. Boy, this is surprising. Remember chapter 23? Kaliah was needing help. The Philistines were attacking them and they sent out word, help us. And, and David says, Lord, do I go to battle? Every battle I fight is your battle. And the Lord says, go down to Kaliah. The guys are like, hold it. We're afraid. Are you sure? David went back and prayed a second time. Yep, I'm for sure. He gets down to Kaliah. They win the battle. Here's a Saul's coming and he prays again. Lord, are we to leave Kaliah or are we to stay here? And the Lord says, yep, go, leave. David was a man who wasn't fighting battles out of his own flesh for his own purposes. He, he understood that every battle I fight is God's battle for his purposes. But not this time. His knee-jerk reaction was, nobody really disrespects me like that. You know, he feels the slap of Nabal. Nabal was wanting David to feel a slap, and he did. But he couldn't turn his right cheek to the other cheek, could he? Now, one of the young men told Abigail in verse 14, Nabal's wife, saying, Look, David sent messengers from the wilderness to greet our master, and he reviled them. But the men were very good to us. We were not hurt, nor did we miss anything as long as we were accompanied by them. And when we were in the fields, they were, on the, they were like a wall to us by day and night all the time. They were with us keeping the sheep. Now, therefore, know, consider what you will do, for harm is determined against our master and against all his household. For he is such a scoundrel that no one can speak to him. Interesting that these servants felt that liberty to tell Abigail what they 
the disrespect they had for Nabal. This wasn't right, but evidently it was a daily thing having to deal with such a foolish man. And they had come to understand this is something we talk about freely, but uh, it shouldn't have been. But then Abigail made haste and took 200 loaves of bread, two skins of wine, five sheep already dressed, five sayas of roasted grain, 100 clusters of raisin, 200 cakes of figs, loaded them on donkeys. And she said to her servant, go on before me. See, I'm coming after you. But she did not tell her husband Nabal. He, she knows he would have said no, and everybody would have been dead by the next day. So in this case, it was better to ask for forgiveness than permission. So it was as she rode on the donkey, she went down under the cover of the hill, and there was David and his men coming down towards her, and she met them. And then in verse 21 and 22, we end here today. Now David had said, surely in vain, listen to David, I have protected all this fellow has in the wilderness so that nothing was missed, all that belongs to him, and he has repaid me evil for good. May God do so and more also to, now David's speaking in the third person. You know somebody's not doing well when they're speaking in the third person. The enemies of David, if I will leave one male who belongs to him alive by morning light. Wow. This reminds us of an earlier story with Saul. But we understood Saul would do that because he was an evil man. Remember when the priest at the city Nob at that time had given David some bread and a sword? He was completely innocent, didn't know that David, that Saul was after David or anything. But when Saul thought he was disrespected by those priests, Saul went down and killed everybody. All the priests and their family members slaughtered him. Now we would simply say, Okay, that's Saul. That's why he's betrayed as a wicked guy in the Bible because that's the way he acted. And, and we know that righteous people don't act that way, but only wicked people act that way. But David's coming on the scene and he's a righteous guy. Boy, he, he really looked righteous the last chapter, right? Not touching Saul, not returning evil for good or good for evil. He was one that that we just sort of cheered going, right on, David. You have this great heart of not touching the Lord's anointed and, and looking past Saul's foolishness. Later, Saul would say, I've played the fool. And you didn't let him, Saul's wicked way, suck you in to become like Saul. Because David's righteous. He would never fall into that kind of trap. Oh, yeah? He did here, didn't he? So the slow-moving Saul, who was the king, who was coming towards him, David meditating on this and, and, and calculating the knowledge of God and the heart of God says, no, you can't touch him. And I, I still grieve that I just cut a little bit of his garment. I got that. But here, surprising, quickly, this Nabal thing happens. David now is being tested again, just like he was tested in the cave and all his men saying, God's in this, kill him. David's being tested now, but he is not calculating it. He's not understanding that this is equally a test from the Lord. That David in his equation, well, Saul's the king, he's greater than I. I need to have this kind of heart towards the Lord's anointed. But now David's in a different equation. He's now looking at this guy Nabal. Yes, he's a wealthy guy, well-known in Israel. But he's not recognizing me as the king's son, as one of the great generals of Israel, and the future king of Israel. He is showing, treating me, this guy who's either equal to me or lesser than me, not with the respect he should. And I am going to send a message to him and everybody else who ever thinks they can disrespect me. Do you see this is the same heart of Saul? This is identical. We got to once again remember that David was a man after God's own heart, but he wasn't a man after God's own heart because he was living a perfect righteous life. We're going to learn the opposite's true, that David was weak, 
like all humans are weak, so was David. He didn't have a special DNA. <laughs> he didn't have a special righteous gene. Boy, that'd be great. Now, right now they can move genes around, have all the kids born with a righteous gene. That's really cool. Um, in Romans 3, Paul says it this way, not about just the souls of this world, but about all of us in this world. In Romans 3, verse 10 to 19, as it's written, there is how many? None righteous. No, not one. Emphatic. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They all together have become unprofitable. There is none who does good. No, not one. Their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues they are practiced deceit. The poison of ass is under their lips. Now take a note of this here in verse 14. Whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Verse 15. Their feet are swift to shed blood. The Saul's and now the David's. Destruction and misery are in their ways, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped, that all the world may become guilty before God. That we all realize we all are dealing with the same sinful nature, whether it's in a Saul or in a David. We all have some navel in us, right? Amen. There are times we're just foolish. And we're so rich. God's given us the greatest country in the world to live in. We have so many blessings of freedom. And yet, we're navels. I'm not going to give David anything. Who is that guy? This is mine. I'm rich. I have all these wealth. Isn't that weird how we can get that way? As if by our own hand, we have done this. When in actuality, if God's blessings weren't in that equation, you may not be alive right now. I'd say most of you can remember times you should have been killed and you weren't. We're alive by God's gift. And so don't be a stingy neighbor. Oh, God, here's your tithe. Ugh, that hurt. Here's an offering. No, don't, don't be that. Everything I have is the Lord's. The Lord's, I, I want to be ready to give, willing to share. I want to have a heart of storing up good works the time to come. And, and so we, we see this David struggling in the same way as all of us struggle. In 1 Corinthians 10, 13, there's no temptation that's overtaken you except that which is common to all men. But God is faithful, who will not allow us to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with temptation will make a way of escape that you may be able to bear it. And we're gonna see this with David next week through Abigail. But the moral of the story here is found in James 1, verse 19 to 21. And I wonder again if James was thinking about this story of Nabal and David in writing these things. Because here he says, my beloved brethren, Christians, fellow believers, every man should be swift to hear, slow to speak, and what? slow to wrath. For the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. There it is. Do we see that? Therefore, lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your soul. In Ephesians 4, verse 26, be angry. That's okay. That happens. That's a human reaction. We can't control it necessarily. It comes and it's in us, but do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath, nor give place to the devil. So this was a testing to David, but Satan was using this as an opportunity to put a foothold in his heart. And David had to recalculate what was going on unless he messes up big time. So here's what could have happened if Abigail doesn't come on the story. David would have went down there, killed all these people. Everybody now says, oh, this next King David is exactly like King Saul, just a different name. And David never would have gotten out from underneath that black cloud. It always would have tainted all the years as a king that he did that. But what happened? I want to tell you, tell you the end of this story. 
God kills Nabal. You see the, the two stories. I mean, David's going, this guy has no right to talk to me this way. This guy has no right to be disrespectful this way. I've been nothing but good to this guy, and he's just completely treating me with disrespect. And I'm going to make this right. <laughs> Boy, Romans 12 makes it clear, right? Don't repay anyone evil for evil. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. So the story could have been, so David stopped a guy who should be stopped because he's not respecting the Lord's anointed David. Was David right? He was right. But he was wrong in what he was getting ready to do. But what happened? God says, David, you're right. He should not have disrespected the Lord's anointed. He should have recognized who you were and, and, and listened. And so you know what? I'm going to set the record right, right right now. And the Lord killed him. So the message goes out now throughout the whole country. David is the Lord's anointed. And if you don't respect him, God might kill you. Do you, do you see it? One is of the flesh and shows forth the wrath of man that does not produce the righteousness of God. And the other story is David shows nothing but respect to the Lord's anointed and God blesses him for that. And now you need to show respect unto David. And if you don't, the Lord you're against the Lord, and the Lord may finish you off right on the, on the moment. And in Philippians, it says that we need to come to the place we see everybody is equal to ourselves or more important than ourselves, and their interests are more important than our interest. Skipping down to 1 Peter chapter 2, two more verses here. What credit is it in 1 Peter 2.20? What credit is to you when you are beaten for your faults, you take it patiently. But when you do good and suffer, if you take it patiently, this is commendable before God. For this you were called. We're called to this life of suffering wrongfully. Because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should, must follow in these steps who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he committed himself to him who judges righteously. And when Jesus did that, it brought us salvation, who himself bore our sins on his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sins, might live to righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed. You are all like sheep going astray, but have now returned to the shepherd and the overseer of your soul. Do you get it? Jesus says, that guy's cursing me and he's so wrong. That Roman soldier nailing me to the cross, that is so wrong. These two thieves mocking me, that's so wrong. And Jesus didn't try to set the record straight. As a lamb was done before our shears, he said on a word, he just said, Father, you set the record straight. As for me, I just ask you to forgive him and heal him all. So David here was in his flesh, going to go take out Nabal. We're going to find Abigail next week, stops him and says, commit it to the Lord. And David says, he's like, you stop me. I commit this unto you, Father. When men disrespect me, when men are wronging me, I'm suffering for righteousness, and I take it patiently. Like Jesus, we're called, keep your mouth shut and just say, Lord, in your time and in your way, however you want to do it. Now, a thousand years from now, set it right. But as for me, I'm committing it to you, and I'm going to be the man that I'm supposed to be, even when the navels of the world shouldn't be able to do this. If they do, they get away with it. It's because you're getting away with it, not because I am going to try to make things right from the works of my flesh. I commit it to you.
Amen. Well, Lord, we come before you now and we realize that we are all being tested. <laughs> Often on the freeways we're tested. But we are tested by our families or neighbors, by fleshly, sinful people to take it in our own hands and to work out the true statement in our own flesh. But Lord, we, we come and we saw David so amazing before Saul. And then we've got to remember that David is a man just like us, with the same flesh just like us, with the same struggles in this sinful body just like us. And David is learning something here that needs to be deep, scribed, scratched deep within the, the stone of our heart that we, far as us, will have the right attitude towards those man, even when man doesn't have the right attitude towards us. And we'll keep our eyes upon you and let you take care of other people. We'll just keep our eyes on you and deal with our own sins. So, Lord, we know you send your word and heal us, and no doubt that's what you're doing right now. And I ask that if you're here right now and you're just saying, this is me. This is me. I'm so angry at this family member. I'm so angry at that person at work. I'm so angry at my neighbor. And I just want to set the record straight. I want to sue him. I want to yell at him. I want to punch him. I want to, Lord, forgive me. Right now, I... Had David gone after Nabal, he would have become twice the fool of Nabal. But yet if we keep our mouth shut like you did, Jesus, revile not back in return, threaten not back when being threatened, but just having that meek and quiet spirit that's so precious in your sight, we just yield before you now. Work that character. Let us all leave here today rich and godly character. And thank you again for all that you've done in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen, amen. Let's stand and we'll close with one song. What you got? Sing, be thou my vision.